Easter is a, just a fantastic time of year. You know, there's a, there's a rhythm to the Christian calendar, and it's anchored in two great events. One is Christmas, of course, when we celebrate the incarnation, when God stepped into space and time, took to himself human flesh and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he lived and he died and he rose again on Easter, that other great anchor point of the Christian faith. And so here we are to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a fantastic time. But it's also kind of a cultural event, isn't it? That has happened over the years and Many of you, I'm sure, are planning to get together with family and friends and there'll be celebrations that will, that will take place this afternoon and that's a great thing. I myself am looking forward to being together with our family and, and grandchildren and so forth. And, you know, I just, I just love little kids. I love little kids. I, I love to, to uh, the toddler age, not the, not the ones that don't do anything. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they do things, but the things they do don't really interest me that much. Like at all. <laughs> but the toddler age, I, I like that because they're, they're just, they're becoming aware of the world around them. And they're, and they're interacting with that world and they're exploring that world. And, and the dialogues that you can have with them are, are just so delightful. It is a really, really fun age and, and I greatly enjoy it. And sometimes they, they say really funny things. They're, they're very candid. They're, there's no guile in them at all. And, and so they will tend to just call it the way they see it. And they'll ask questions. And sometimes the questions can be quite funny. And I remember many, many years ago when uh, driving with one of my children when, uh, when she was a toddler. And we were in the front seat of my father-in-law's pickup truck. And uh, he was driving and I was next to the door. And this was long before car seats and those sort of things had been invented. And uh, so my daughter was sitting between us, buckled into the front seat, and, and she was just staring up at her grandpa who was driving. And, and finally she, she said, uh, Grandpa, why do you have grass growing out of your nose? <laughs> it, was just, it was just delightful. It's refreshing. <laughs> Well, as we grow up, of course, our questions get a little more profound than that. Uh, but we have questions, important questions that we need to ask. And, and at some point in our lives, we, we begin to ask those deep kinds of questions. And, and really, the answers to those questions kind of set us on a path to our lives. We want to know things like, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? How did this world get here? Is everything in life simply random and without meaning? Is there a God? What is he like? Can I know him? Why do people die? And, and will they live again? 
Where did evil come from? Will the wicked triumph? Will will they get away with it? Is there not some justice in the world? We ask these kinds of questions, and, and they're important questions. They're serious questions. And, and you know, the, the Bible has answers to these questions. The Bible has answers to them. And this, this Easter morning, I, w- I want to share with you the answers to these kinds of questions. And I want to I do it using an illustration, an illustration of a, of a, of a path. And along this path, there are various signposts, various signposts that, that point to reality and, and answer these kinds of, of really profound and, and critical questions that, that every thinking person must ask. I have six of them for you this morning. Six signposts that define and declare the, the path of life. And I offer them to you so that we might live eternally with God. So that we might live eternally with God. Now this, this path of life, it's, it's also known as the gospel. It's also called the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It is the good news. It is the Christian message of redemption and hope. My prayer this morning is as we trod this path together and and look at these signposts along the way that the the Spirit of God will will work this morning in your heart and life. And that you might understand and that you might believe unto eternal life. So let's get started together this morning with the first signpost. There's the path and there's the signpost. The first one is simply this. It it declares God's design. It all begins there with God's design. God is the loving creator of the world. He has made the world. He has made everything in the world. He sustains the world. He owns the world. And he will someday judge the world in righteousness. The opening verse of the of the Bible declares this reality. For it says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the very first verse of the scriptures, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God is the loving ruler and creator of all that is. The psalmist In Psalm 24 and verse 1 says it this way, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. This is the message of the Bible. And it opens the Bible and it closes the Bible. The message of God is loving creator and ruler of all. Open your Bibles to Psalm 33 and let's look a little more closely at this reality. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 6. The psalmist writes, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. 
He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. God spoke into existence everything we can see and that which we cannot. The material and the immaterial world, God spoke it into existence. Only God is eternal. Everything else is created. It has an origin in in space and time and it will continue from there. But only God inhabits eternity past to eternity future. He is the loving creator of all things. But God not only made the, the physical world that we can observe and the, and the immaterial world, but, but he made us. He made humanity. And he made humanity as, as his highest creation, that they might rule over the world in submission under him. Again, the Bible declares this reality at the very beginning, back in Genesis chapter 1. The sixth day of creation. Beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 7, a more detailed account of that first of that sixth day it says then the lord god formed man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being and the lord god planted a garden toward the east in eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed psalm 8 speaks of the same reality Where the psalmist writes the following. Beginning in verse 3. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He opens the psalm with. And then beginning in verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the seas, whatever passes through the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God created us. He created us male and female. And he created us with a purpose. 
And the purpose is for us to rule over the works of his hands, to rule over the creation in loving submission to the creator, God. But is that the way it is now? Is that how the world appears now? The sad reality is that it does not. That we have rejected the ruler God by trying to run our own life our own way without him. And in the process, we we have failed to rule both ourselves or society or the world at large. This is the sorry state of affairs into which you and I are quite familiar. All around us, as we look, we see brokenness. We see wars. We see famines. We see crime. We see the inhumanity of man to man. We see the the failure to rule over the creation in a loving fashion. We see people exploit it for their own personal good. But it's not all out there, my friends. It lies in here. For at the most fundamental level of of human interrelationship, the world is broken. We fail to to rule ourselves. We, We cannot control our own passions. The very thing that we know is the right thing to do, we do not do. And that which we do not want to do, we find that that is the very thing we end up doing. We are trapped in this terrible reality. We have made a mess of things. And that leads us to the second signpost. The second signpost. Man's disobedience. Man's disobedience. God's design now suffers under man's disobedience. The Bible is a... a, is the word of God given to man. And, and as such, it is, it is true and, and, it, and it provides an assessment of the human condition that is unvarnished. It is clear, it is penetrating, it is stark, and it is real. And in fact, the scripture speaks of itself as if it were a mirror. That is, that, that it's a mirror that enables us to gain a true and accurate image of who we really are. And what is our problem? And so I take you to the book of of Romans, chapter 3. Where the scripture gives us an analysis of the human condition. And it is a stark and it is a penetrating analysis. Romans chapter 3 and beginning in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. God looks out over humanity. He evaluates it all. And his conclusion is there is none of us righteous. That is, there is none of us who has, who has lived before God as we ought. The Bible calls this sin. 
sin. And the, the diagnosis of sin is, is not made by comparing person to person. And that's usually how we approach it. We say, well, yeah, yes, I, I've made mistakes or I've done some things wrong, but I'm not as bad as... And then we name our favorite villain. But that's not what the Bible does. It says that the standard of measurement is not another flawed and, and fallen human being. The standard of measure, the evaluation point is God himself. And compared to our loving creator, we all fall woefully short. My friends, the reality of the situation is is that we are closer to Adolf Hitler than we are to Jesus Christ. The state of the human soul is desperate, trapped in its wickedness. Now, it's important we note that when the Bible speaks about sin, it is not speaking fundamentally about rule-breaking. It is not speaking about rule-breaking. Fundamentally, the, the problem within the human condition is one of rebellion. One of rebellion. A refusal to live under the lawful and loving rule of our Creator. And it is this condition of rebellion that lies within the human heart that, that manifests itself in, in various acts of sin. Why do people do what they do? Why do you do what you do? The Bible's assessment of this is because you are fundamentally at your core a rebel. You are a rebel. You have rejected God's loving rule over you and you have determined to rule life yourself. To be, as it were, your own king, your own God. When I make specific choices, evil choices, choices to sin, when I communicate in ways that are, that are sinful and hurtful to other people, when I think thoughts that ought not to be thought, when I fail to do that which I ought to do, in all of these things, it is merely a manifestation of the rebel's heart. The rebel's heart. Where did it come from? What is the source of such rebellion? It certainly cannot be parental training. For which of us who have raised children have raised them in such a fashion, right? How long does it take a young one before they will look you in the eye and say no? Not long at all. How long will it take for a couple of young ones in the nursery to snatch a toy from their friend and then bash them over the head with it? Right? We laugh. We laugh. But add 20 years to their life and that same behavior is now homicide. There's a deepness to the rebellion. And it lies deep in the human soul. Where did it come from? It began with our first parents. It is a hereditary disease. 
And again, I turn you back to the book of beginnings, to Genesis. In chapter 3. It begins here with the, with the first man and woman from whom all of humanity have descended. It is your inheritance. And it is deep within your soul. The Bible records it this way, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Let me just cause you to reflect back to chapter 2 and verse 15 to see. Chapter 2, verse 15. It says that the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Not long after this, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is keeping something from you. God is, is withholding from you something that you ought to have, something that you deserve. You should be like Him. You shouldn't take His word for things. You should figure it out yourself. Discover your own reality. Put Him to the test. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And from that point forward, that is exactly what humanity has been doing. We have been hiding ourselves from God as if one could hide from his creator. We have put up all kinds of shields and barriers because the penetrating gaze of the Holy One unnerves us. It looks deep into our soul. Adam died. And all who follow from him die as well. Before we move on, though, let me just remind you of this. The problem is relational, not behavioral. 
The problem is relational and not behavioral. In that act of rebellion and disobedience in which we all participate and in which we all renew in our own lives day by day, we reject the relationship. And it's the rejection of that relationship that leads to thoughts and deeds that the Bible calls sin. What will God do about the rebellion? What will God do with rebels? What would you do if you were God? The answer is he will not let us rebel forever. There is a punishment for rebellion. Rebels must be punished. And so God will punish our rebellion. And he will punish it through death and judgment. And that takes us to the third signpost on the road. The third signpost. Man's destiny. God's design Man's disobedience, now man's destiny. The world cries for justice. All around us, there there is the cry for justice. There there is something in the very depth of our being that senses that, that there is a lot of injustice in this world and it should not continue, that the wicked should be punished. And the reality is that someday the wicked will be. We see the cry for justice, by the way, in even the young. Again, back to those little children. They will, in a situation where where they have been when they have been offended, where someone has, has done something to them, they will call out and say, That's not fair. That's not fair. And they'll be looking to their mom and dad to intervene on their behalf and to set things right. So deep within the human heart is a, is a, a sense in which injustice should not prevail, must not prevail, and judgment must come. The problem is that in our self-bias, we want justice for everybody except who? Us, right? Everybody but us. When it comes to the topic of justice for our own rebellion, we want to evade the consequences. We want to evade those consequences. But, but listen to me, the inevitable reality of God as ruler and man as rebel is that God's judgment must and will come upon us. It must and it will. The Bible says it this way in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. There is an appointment that each and every one of us have. We have an expression in our society. There are two things, right, that you can count on. One is taxes and the other is death. Death and taxes. Well, my friends, more biblically speaking, you can count on two things, death and judgment, death and judgment. The Bible says the judgment that comes upon the rebel is twofold. It first begins in our physical death. 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. We all have an appointment someday. There will be a funeral someday for each and every one of us. Why do people die? Have you ever thought about that? Why do people die? What is it that causes death? When you get right down to it, you know, nobody, the medical community doesn't know. It cannot give you an answer. It can describe certain symptoms and realities, but, but it cannot answer the fundamental question of why a person who is alive a moment later now is dead. Why? The Bible answers that question. And it is simply this. In our rebellion, we have been cut off from God. And being cut off from God, we have been cut off from the source of life. We have been cut off from the tree of life, as it were. Think about it this way with me. When you break off a branch from a tree, it remains green for a period of time, doesn't it? It takes a, a while, a few days, before, before it dries up and the, and the brown sets in and, and it becomes worth its only value being the fireplace. Well, that is a great analogy for the human life because when that, tr- when that limb is snapped off from that tree, when it is separated from the source of life, that branch is dead. It may take a little while, a little time for the death to manifest itself in the drying of the limb, but it is dead the moment it is separated from its source of life. In a similar way, that's true of you and I. We are dead even while we live. The moment we were separated from God, And the scripture tells us that that moment of separation occurs at conception. It is at that moment in time that we are dead. And it only takes a matter of days, months, or years before the dryness sets in. And the death that is there becomes evident. But beloved, it doesn't doesn't end with physical death. That's not the end of it. The scripture says that we are destined to die once, yes, but then after that comes judgment. Judgment. There is a day of wrath coming. At the end of the age, God will judge the world in righteousness and he will banish from his presence all rebels. Turn to the end of the Bible to Revelation chapter 20. where this great and terrible judgment day is described. Revelation chapter 20 and beginning in verse 11. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, 
And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Through the years, I've talked with many people about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a very common response that I hear from people is, that God will judge me according to my deeds. And at the end of time, when my good deeds outweigh my bad, I will be invited in. Well, they're half right. Because the scripture says exactly that. You will be judged according to your deeds. The problem is the standard by which you will be judged is God's own perfection. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard of the judgment. And as we all know, nobody is perfect. Nobody is perfect. That puts us in an incredibly frightening position. If we have understood the realities of these signposts, God's design as the loving ruler and man's disobedience to that loving rule, then we are in the most precarious position imaginable. It is an inescapable trap. There is no way out. We have offended our Creator, and He says that He will most assuredly punish those who are in rebellion against Him. This is the bad news of the Christian message. This is the the stark, unvarnished, penetrating analysis of the Creator God upon His creation. Every one of us. We all fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. We are without hope. Destined for damnation and deserving it. But God. But God, in His mercy, reaches out to us. What we cannot do for ourselves, God, in turn, does for us. God, in His great love and mercy, has reached out to humanity. The Creator who has been offended reaches out to the offender and offers their only hope of Salvation. That takes us to our fourth signpost on this path. God's deliverer. God's deliverer. 
Beloved, drowning people need to be saved. Amen? They need someone who is not drowning themselves to reach out and pull them from the water. They cannot save themselves. They are going down. Someone must save them. And because of his great love for us, God has done just that. He has reached out. He has done for mankind what mankind could never do for themselves. He has sent a deliverer to rescue us. He sent his own son, the man Jesus Christ. This is an amazing reality. And in fact, it is this amazing reality that separates Christianity from all other religions. There are only two religions in the world. There is Christianity, the religion in which God, the offended one, reaches out to man, the offender, and saves him. And all other religions in which man, the sinner, attempts to reach out to God. And falls woefully short. My friends, it is God's reach to us that provides the assurance of our deliverance. It is that upon which we can place our hope, not a wishful thinking, but a a confident Hope, a deep, settled hope within our, within our heart that, that the eternal punishment due our rebellion has been averted in Christ. Let me explain it to you. God's justice demands that rebels be punished. Therefore, all rebels deserve what? Punishment. And all humans are rebels. Rebels. But, in order to rescue us, God did the most amazing thing. While at the same time maintaining His justice, not averting His eye, not saying, well, it doesn't matter, ollie ollie income free. No, God maintains His righteous standard. But what He does is He sends His own Son into the world to bear the consequences due us. 2,000 years ago, God's own son stepped into space and time and became a man. He became a man. And at the same time, he gave up none of his deity. The God-man, the incarnation, the message of Christmas. And then this God-man lived a perfect life. A life of complete submission and obedience to his Father, Creator God. He never failed. He never fell short. He lived in that perfect relationship with his Father for which we were designed to live. Submission to the Father. And he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Never. Then according to the divine plan, Jesus took our place. He stood in for us. He died for us as a substitute. He fulfilled the demands of the just law of God for us. He shared our humanity. 
He shared our humanity in order to be our substitute. His equality with the Father invests his death with sufficient merit to pay for the sins of the world. The perfect one stood in for me, stood in for you. The Bible says it this way in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. Hebrews chapter 7, or chapter 2 rather, in verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That is to turn away the wrath of God. That's a fancy word for that. The angel to Mary's husband Joseph, when she finds herself with child without having had sexual union with a man. The angel says to Joseph, She that is Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The ancient prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 6, writes, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He sent his own son into the world. Who lived perfectly in submission to the Father. And then willingly gave himself. This is the most amazing news. The most amazing news. God absorbed the punishment due us himself. Himself. That's the way out of the inescapable trap. That's the way in which God remains true to his righteous nature. That's the way in which the justice upon the rebel comes to pass. The judgment that is due is averted because God consumes it himself. We celebrate it on what we call Good Friday. Good Friday. But the message doesn't end there. That's not all. After Good Friday comes... Sunday, Sunday, and this is the fifth signpost, God's declaration, God's declaration. Listen, because Jesus was sinless, God the Father did not leave his body in the ground to rot, but raised him up, declaring him to be ruler of the world. Raised to life as king of creation. It is through the resurrection that that Jesus conquered death. Conquered death. And he now gives new life. And someday we'll return to judge. This is all by virtue of his resurrection. 
Turn back with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24. Be reminded that this is a space and time event. This is not some ethereal activity. This is the resurrection from the dead. This is a dead human body coming to life again. And because he lives, we too can live. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, that is, the women, came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bound their, bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. The living one. Why do you look for him among the dead? He is not here. He has risen from the dead. That reality is the Christian gospel message that now goes forth into all the earth. From that moment forward, his small band of followers turn the world upside down. They would not keep quiet. They were threatened. They were punished. And they were executed. They would not be quiet. Book of Acts tells us, chapter 2, verse 24, God raised him up again, putting to an end the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Death could not hold Jesus, for Jesus was a righteous man, did not die for his own sin, but died for the sin of the world. Acts chapter 2, a little bit later, verses 32 and 36. Their message is, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. By virtue of his resurrection, God has established him Lord and King of creation. A little later in the book, chapter 10, verse 42, they say, He, that is God, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. By virtue of his resurrection, he is the judge of the living and the dead. And by the way, there are only two kinds of people. The living and the dead. He is judge of all. You can see it in Acts chapter 17. I'll turn you there. The Apostle Paul says it this way. In Acts chapter 17, in, in verse 30, as he is speaking to the, to the intelligentsia of ancient Greece there in Athens. And Paul says, Therefore, 
This is the summary of his of his message to them, the conclusion of his message. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He is the Lord of creation. He is the judge of the living and the dead. Second Thessalonians, turning to the right. Chapter 1. Verse 7, beginning in the middle of the verse. Paul writes, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He has been raised from the dead to grant life to those who will receive him by faith and judgment upon those who refuse. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. John writes there, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The resurrected one holds the keys to the grave. And by holding the keys to the grave, beloved, that means he locks and unlocks it. He determines who goes where. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and following, Paul says it this way, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the resurrected one. It is the resurrection That is God's exclamation point. It is God's emphatic statement that Jesus is the long-awaited messianic king. It is he who holds the keys to the age to come. It is by our relationship to this king that one enters or is denied access into the age to come. It all comes down to that. He is the deciding factor. He is the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. All who come to him in faith are granted access into his kingdom. And those who deny him are banished to the lake of fire. On the very night in which he was betrayed, Jesus said it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. He holds the keys of life. 
And that takes us to the sixth and final signpost. You notice the illustration has changed, hasn't it? There are now two paths, two ways to live. We arrive at a decision point. The trail has reached a fork. We must go one or the other. We, we cannot continue. We cannot keep a foot on both paths. To not decide is to decide. We've arrived at a decision point. We can reject the ruler God and continue to try to run life our own way without him. We can, we can emulate that funny-looking bird, the ostrich. When danger arrives, burying its head in the sand. Somehow thinking, if I can't see them, they can't see me, right? How silly. By the way, why does an ostrich do that? God has designed the ostrich to do that, that it might be a living example of how not to deal with danger. I'm serious. It is a living illustration of the wrong approach. Beloved, if we continue to reject God as our loving ruler, then we will remain under his condemnation and facing death and judgment. That's the reality. Or we can live God's new way. Submitting to Jesus as our ruler and relying on Jesus' death and resurrection to pay for our sin and grant us access into God's kingdom. We're talking about faith. We're talking about faith. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is a reliance upon someone or something to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is to rely upon his death, burial, and resurrection as full and complete satisfaction, paid in full, before a loving God. God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself if you will come to him in faith. He will forgive you. And he will grant you eternal life. The scripture says it this way. Jesus' own words in John 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Jesus holds his arms open wide and says, come. Come to me. Rely upon me. Give up on yourselves and your own attempts to be right before God. Embrace the reality of your condition and then turn in faith and rely upon me, the living one who has conquered death and now holds the keys. For it is I who grant you access to the age to come. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. Which 
path are you on this Easter? Which path are you on? Let's pray. Our Father, the great and glorious news of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, is only great and glorious when it is placed against the backdrop of the reality of our sinful and desperate condition. Like a jeweler's diamond displayed on a, on a velvet cloth, the sparkle and the, and, the, and the brightness of that jewel shows best when viewed against darkness. And in that way, the glory of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is comprehensible and shown to be glorious as it is when we take the time to view it against the darkness of our own desperate condition. Our Father, you have so established things that there is only two choices. That it is impossible to straddle the fence. One cannot walk on two paths at the same time. One must turn to Jesus and receive everlasting life or one rejects him and is condemned. Our Father, I pray right now for those who are hearing this message that your Holy Spirit would move in their hearts that the reality of the scriptures in this matter would come crashing in on them, that they would realize and recognize their need for a Savior, that they would turn in faith, relying on the resurrected Christ to grant them access to the age to come. O oh Lord, save, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.